0: Welcome to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode of Inside the Rope, we're speaking with Cathy Wood, the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Arc Investment Management, a firm that's founded solely, 100% on investing in disruptive technology. Based in New York, they're absolute world leaders in investing in this area of the market. Hi Cathy, welcome to Australia and welcome Inside the Row.
1: Thank you Dave, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Cathy, if we could start with really, if you could give us a summary of, or a background as to your investment background and how you came to start and why you chose to start ARC Investment Management.
1: Okay, well I've been in the uh, asset management business for 40 years. I started when I was in college at the University of Southern California Uh, introduced to the business by uh, Arthur B. Laffer, Laffer Curve, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but he was my mentor. He's on our board now. Uh, So I spent uh, 40 years in uh, economics, uh, equity research, portfolio management, started managing money in 1990, always focused on technologically enabled disruption. Uh, That was one of the um, sweet spots of uh, one of the firms. I was at Jenison Associates for 18 years uh, and spent a lot of time on new technologies as they were emerging, so uh, wireless and the Internet. uh, In the early days, that was known as uh, database publishing, so uh, it's been Mm -hmm. fun to see that happen. Um, I started uh, Arc for two reasons. Uh, First, after two serious corrections in the market, so the tech and telecom bust in 0809. Uh, financial crisis, uh, there's um, evolved a tremendous amount of risk aversion, understandably. Uh, but in our world, what that has meant is moving back to benchmarks. Uh, so the benchmark is considered safety. Uh, we're actually moving 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And that's because there's so much innovation taking place today mm-hmm. that we think investing only with the benchmarks uh, is a mistake. That is really risky. Oh, it's very risky because there are a lot of value traps, not just in value stocks, but in growth stocks. Yes. Innovation is moving so fast that a lot of growth managers are not used to this concept of value traps in their portfolios, but they have them. So what do you mean by a value trap? So traditional retailers are value traps. A lot Mm -hmm. of traditional uh, value managers have been um, trying to sift through the carnage in the bricks and mortar retail space and um so
0: buying stuff that's cheap but you're still saying it's still too expensive even though it's cheap
1: yes and another telltale sign uh, is that there are high dividend yields i'm not sure in australia but in many uh value traps oh, yeah. one one of the things that so keeps investors, so in australia
0: yeah most of our investors have a big exposure to australian banks because they love the five percent dividend yield plus yeah. the franking credits they get with that and make it a bit higher yeah and yeah. they're very used to that.
1: So that's the same um, concept. Uh, uh, many financial companies are going to be disintermediated by all kinds of uh, emerging technologies. Uh, we run a fintech mandate for, for NICO asset management in Japan. And uh, the this part of the world uh, is moving much faster towards fintech, mobile payments. Uh, Uh, blockchain technology so the Australian stock exchange moving uh, really settling trades on blockchain technology by the end of this year that's huge so you're 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 very fast adopters
0: blockchain I'm looking through a list of areas that you're interested in big data cloud you know uh, genome which I'll get you to talk about in a moment but but blockchain and Bitcoin I notice these are one of the things that you like you're big on can you talk a little bit about what that means, what it is? I try to explain to my dad what this is. And I say it's going to be big, and, <laughs> and then I try to articulate to him the rest of it, um, cutting people out, payment processes, um, MasterCard, Visa, all these people yeah. um, you know, on, on shaky legs. Can you explain for our... Our audience.
1: Yes. Well, one one thing um, we probably both should stay away from is really trying to explain the plumbing. It'd be like explaining routers and switches and headers and TCP, so TCP, um, and for maybe Cisco, which was the company that built out the backbone of the internet, that might have been relevant. But what what's more relevant uh, are the applications or the use cases. Mm-hmm. So, in the case of Bitcoin. One of the biggest use cases is remittances. So Bitcoin, which is the largest of more than 800 crypto assets out there, mm-hmm. uh, its market cap is around $80 billion right now, so it's quite significant.
0: So uh, that's how much of it is out there? Yes,
1: okay. yes, that's, that's how much is out there. Um, Bitcoins uh, today being used uh, in the corridor between South Korea and the Philippines uh, for 20% of all remittances. So workers sending money back to their families. Now, why is this a, a, a more economical way to do this? Well, if you use Western Union and other agencies, uh, these these workers are going to be paying 7 to up to 25% of what they send back to their families mm-hmm. to these agents. Uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoin's blockchain uh, enables Nothing more than money over IP. So voice over IP is free Mm -hmm. right now.
0: Over internet protocol. Yes, over internet internet. protocols, right.
1: Uh, I remember in the day when technologists were saying, voice is going to be free. This is when the internet started. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that concept. Now I do. Voice over IP. This is money over IP. And so the corridor between South Korea and Philippines, the sender and receiver do not know that they are sending and receiving Bitcoin. What they're doing, all they're paying for is the conversion from fiat into Bitcoin and back again. So instead of 7 to 8%, they're paying 2 to 3% and that's going to go down over time. So that's one use case. Another use case is digital gold. So Bitcoin in particular is the most secure of the crypto assets out there. Uh, That is why it's the largest. It is mathematically metered to top out at 21 million units. So right now it's a little above 16 and a half million units. If you knew that something was going to top off at 21 million units and and that the demand for it, for all kinds of reasons, was going to increase, you'd probably think that's a good store of value and that it would maintain you would maintain your purchasing power. So uh, digital gold is definitely a use case. And then the third use case is... So uh, when you say
0: digital gold, you're talking about just a safety currency for people to store wealth in in case everything else goes bad.
1: Right, and a lot of people say, well, how do you store something that's digital? Well, there are services like Coinbase, uh, Kraken in this part of the world, uh, where you can um, give them or, or buy the Bitcoin from them, and they will put it in what's co- called cold storage. They will take it offline, put it into cold storage, and uh, the the um, saver will need eight keys in order to unlock that digital gold. So it's really safe. We've so never what had... happens
0: when you lose that key, though? You know, I have an, I have all sorts of problem keeping exactly. passwords, everything else. I hear stories of people throwing out hard drives or USB drives with their keys on That's them. That's
1: right. That's a problem. That's a problem. So that is why um, you would go to an exchange or a service like Coinbase to to actually do the, the work for to you. To take that risk out of play. And they take the risk out.
0: Okay. So how does an investor profit out of this trend? Is it just trading the currency? Or I noticed you use the word asset, crypto asset, not yeah. cryptocurrency.
1: Yes, that's but, a good observation. But is
0: it trading? Well, why do you make that distinction?
1: So, and actually our analyst coined these phrases. So crypto asset is the entire universe of more than 800 assets. Yes. Now, most of them will disappear. There's too much money chasing too few opportunities, mm-hmm. right? And there's a lot of me too starting to take place. Um, so uh, cryptocurrencies are like Bitcoin. Yes. Uh, Bitcoin is store of value. We think it'll be used like a currency, <laughs> primarily. Um, uh, if you go to Ether, Ether is what we would call a crypto commodity. So uh, Ether is the first uh, digital service, distributed digital services out there. Um, if you understand uh, Amazon Web Services, that concept where uh, companies rent technology yep. from uh, Amazon, right, This actually takes that a step further, and Amazon is going with this as well. They've just said they're going to build on top of Ether. Uh, So what this will enable are uh, distributed services like storage, uh, bandwidth, so supercomputing power. So here's the most interesting example to me. You have a Tesla in your garage at night, Mm -hmm. and you're charging it your Tesla is actually a supercomputer. It has supercomputing capacity on there. Mm-hmm. Someone on the other end of the world needs supercomputing capacity. They'll rent it from you. You'll earn some money off of your car. Wow. Yeah. That's what this is going to enable.
0: Okay. Excellent. Now, you've raised a few uh, points there that are really interesting. One of them you, you raised and led into is Amazon. Yeah. Now, a couple of weeks back, we interviewed on this podcast series Hamish Douglas who is a successful uh, asset fund manager uh, concentrating on international equities mm-hmm. um, he's got about 50 billion under management now he's you know real buffett style moat etc mm-hmm. but he started to invest more into technology mm-hmm. but these are really sort of Mass adopted technologies where you've got a clear line of sight. So, yes. Apple, and you know, he, he will argue there's a business mm-hmm. model here. And he gives some great examples of disruption around yeah. it's not always where you see it or expect it. Yes. You know, Wrigley Chewing Gum, 16% sales gone down because of point of sale terminals going. Yes. That sort of stuff. He talks about Amazon and Amazon's really topical because they've just announced they're coming to Australia. Yes. So people have been hunting around, working out where they're gonna buy their warehouses, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And there's all sorts of speculation as to how the retailers here in Australia are going to cope. Um, he won't invest in Amazon because he says he can't work out a clear line of sight of how you make money out of Amazon or where the earnings comes from Amazon. I think from what I've read you might have a different position, I'd like to hear
1: it. Yeah, we have a very different point of view. Um, So Jeff Bezos in 1997 when he founded Amazon said, we're in day one of the internet. Uh, About 18 months ago in his shareholders letter he said, we're in day one of the internet. And what that is a code word for is he is going to continue to uh, invest aggressively to capitalize on this opportunity. So to give you a sense of how well he's doing, Uh, Let's just take the United States in terms of online retail. Online retail is now hitting roughly 10% of total retail. Many people are surprised. They think we're much more advanced than that. China's at 15%. Um, In the United States, because of the infrastructure that Amazon has put in place and because of the platform that it is for other retailers to leverage upon, and build out their own online services. Um, Amazon is now getting more than 50% of each incremental dollar that moves online. 50% in one of the most over retailed brick and mortar countries in the world. They're destroying bricks and mortar. But they're enabling smaller, some mom and pop, uh, some bigger than that, retailers who have chosen to use uh, Amazon's uh, fulfillment by Amazon. Uh, Many people are surprised to learn that 50 percent of Amazon's uh, gross merchandise sales are third party, not Amazon. Mm -hmm. And they're very profitable, very profitable. So the big retailers, to the extent they did not start preparing for this onslaught years and years ago, are at increasing disadvantage, and that's because Amazon has also built out Amazon Web Services, why did it do this? Uh, And I've heard they've hired a 1,000 people here in Australia for Amazon Web Services. Um, Their technology build out is vast, but peak capacity utilization is really one time a year, the holidays, right, the major holidays, the major holiday. Well, early, in the early days, they said, we should rent out this computing capacity, the storage, these analytics abilities to small companies and enable them.
0: So AWS is this spare capacity of what they built for themselves?
1: Exactly. And they're earning, this model is 10 times more profitable than the retail model. So it has given them another competitive advantage. And then we move one step further. Uh, and I know in Australia, a lot of questions are: Well, look, the cities are spaced far apart. Logistically, yep. this is going to be very hard for them to do. We know they've got a distribution center. Uh, if, uh, I think it's in planning stages. It may be up. I don't know yep. in, near I think Melbourne. It's in Melbourne. Yep, correct. Yeah. Uh so, uh, and we think one of the reasons Amazon has been attracted to Australia is when uh, we in the United States were having trouble with the regulators when it came to drones. Uh, Amazon is probably on its 20th generation of drone technology. But we were on generation 9 and the FAA wouldn't let them, uh, Amazon fly its drones outside. It had to be inside the warehouses. Australia was much more friendly. In that regard. So I think that. She'll uh, be right. Pardon?
0: She'll be right. Yes. Just yes. let them fly those yes. things wherever they want. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I think Amazon thinks uh, uh, Australia is a friendly place. But what they're doing now is they are uh, building out what we would call logistics as a service. Yes. So they're buying airports, airplanes, boats, cargo ships, uh, and trucks certainly investing aggressively in drones. And a lot of this is to address territories like uh, Australia, so, where-
0: So you're not worried about the valuations that if you look backwards, you'd say this has been a great place to be for the last five years.
1: For the past 20 years.
0: For the last 20 years. And if you say right where we are now, there'll be a lot of people <coughs> saying, well, gee, you know, this has got all the marks of something that's gonna correct. Okay. You're not so worried about that.
1: No, in fact, when I hear that a business is taking fifty percent of incremental market share mm-hmm. in uh, in the new way things are being done mm-hmm. online retail. Uh, I am emboldened yeah. uh, so, now. So here's, here's another way to look at this. So they're in terms of earnings, their gross margins are, were very low and uh, and still are low uh, twenty low twenties percent. They're up to low thirties now because of Amazon Web Services. All of this is enabling uh, them to become more aggressive in the retail space, right? Now, in uh, if you look at their so if you look at their investments, you're not going to. We encourage these investments, and that means earnings are going to be very low. Gross margins moving up, that's a good sign. We have to look at the sales level to get a sense of where valuations are. So, uh, as a multiple of sales, Amazon is about three, three and a half times. If you look at software as a service businesses, and that's where this is evolving, right? Uh, They are regularly priced between 5 and 10 times, some higher. Uh, Now Amazon is lower margin than those, but it has two things going on. It has this massive growth that I mentioned to you, and its gross margins are moving up. So they're getting into more profitable businesses over time. From our view of the world, Amazon is a cheap stock. I know that sounds crazy, given it's at 100 to 150 times earnings, Yes, Uh, but relative to sales, uh, it is in the context of the world uh, that we research day in and day out, it is cheap.
0: Kathy, one of the things you mentioned there, you touched upon, was the fact that they're getting 50% of incremental spend in that market. That introduces this concept of you know first mover advantage and a bit of a trend that these it's almost a winner takes all or winner takes most type yes. of markets where in the past you know investors businesses have sort of said well we'll let people run in there and take the arrows and then we'll be fast to follow right and we'll take the market right is that a trend that you're seeing across the board
1: absolutely uh, and uh, the reason for it is amazon and facebook and google have become the data aggregators what they have is information on people so that they can target their products and services to them much more effectively than anyone else. Uh, so that's one of the things you're seeing.
0: Excellent. Can I we, can we change tact a little bit now? You mentioned also earlier uh, Tesla. Yes. And I'm very interested in your view on, you know, when they're gonna solve the battery problem. Everyone I talk to in this area, um, I'm certainly no expert, but they tell me that the issue is the battery technology. Mm-hmm. You know, they tell me that, you know, your, your iPhone after three years, the lithium-ion battery starts to get a bit wonky. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's going to happen with these batteries in the cars? And until they solve this lithium-ion or battery replacement storage issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to really see it take off. What's your, your view on
1: that? Well, we think uh, we think that uh, we're hitting an inflection point there as well. So if you look at battery technology, uh, uh, the reason a lot of auto companies and others dismissed Tesla's entry into the uh, auto market and the electric vehicle market is um, they laughed uh, at the fact that here Tesla seemed to be lining the bottom of its cars with cell phone batteries. Mm-hmm. and And we hear about Cell phone batteries blowing up, and uh, certain kinds, at least. Um, what they uh, did not understand is the secret sauce for uh, Elon Musk is not the batteries themselves, but the battery pack systems. How he's engineered the batteries to lay uh, at the bottom of uh, of the car. Um, already, we're seeing ranges. Now, I'm going to give this in miles, which sure. you can translate into yep. kilometers. So. Already, the ranges for their high-end cars are in the 360-mile range,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and uh, so rarely... So I can
0: tell you this, and this is this Australian sort of phenomenon and take on this. Yes. I looked at uh, one for my wife. Um, we are replacing a seven-seater. She said, we're gonna have seven-seater. They brought the new seven-seater yes, out. Yes, um, Her family's got a farm in northeast Victoria, and we worked out, you know, this excellent sales and everything else, but we worked out we were 50 kilometers short because uh-huh. its range might be 550 kilometers or yes. something like that. And we yes. had to go 60 kilometers, which means we'd have to stop at Aubrey, which is on the border of the state, and, you know, plug in yes. you know, a high-speed thing for 20 minutes to get us down the road to, to plug in at a farm where they'd laugh because, you know, they, they wouldn't expect to see something like this. Right. But right. Yeah, that sort of range.
1: So that's called range anxiety, and there is a lot of that. uh, A lot of that in Australia, I'd suggest, because we're big, long, long distances. So uh, what you need is a supercharging network, which is what we have in the United States. So the range anxiety has gone down dramatically, because a couple of things are happening. The uh, supercharging network has been built out across the country so much so that Elon Musk. uh, this past summer took his family on uh, a vacation across country in his uh, electric vehicle, the seven-seater, I believe yep. it was. Yep. I think he has four children, so he was risking a lot, right? Okay. And uh, they did fine, and uh, again, they're uh, one of their compent- competitive advantages is a supercharging uh, network. My guess is you will see that evolve here in Australia as well.
0: Well, we've got some of them.
1: Okay, so that's right. going to that's yeah. going to take the edge off of ra- range anxiety. It may not cure it here in Australia, but uh, if we analyze uh, the average trip per day that most people take in the United States. It's about 20 to 30 miles per day.
0: Yes. And
1: that's to and from work uh, or what have you. So there should be no issue there. And the Model 3, which is coming out next, is going to be the kind of car you'd take to work, more of the kind of car you'd take Correct. to work. And,
0: and when when do we see the cutover of inflection of electric vehicles? I think you may be on record as 2020. And then when do we see autonomous vehicles?
1: So we see the... Um, uh, we see... Uh, the, the, the cost curve declines associated with batteries and other technologies in the car uh, suggests that by 2022 a, uh, a, a Tesla or an electric vehicle will cost less than a Toyota Camry. And what's nice about this is, and, and, and this is, the research that we do is all around cost curve declines mm-hmm. and the unit growth that it stimulates. So uh, what's nice about this cost curve decline is it doesn't just stop when it passes, surpasses the, uh, or drops below the Camry price. It keeps going down in price. That's what technology does. Meanwhile, gas-powered cars are going up slightly in price every year and that's because they're very mature, number one, Uh, and uh, number two, uh, they have to deal with emission standards, which are getting more and more expensive to do. Uh, So we have the electric vehicle cost falling below uh, the gas-powered vehicle cost, and we think that that will stimulate 17 million uh, electric vehicle sales per year by the year 2022. Now, traditional forecasting agencies out there have that number at two million. Bloomberg's Bloomberg's uh, just gone to four million. If we're right, Tesla is in a, a premier position to capitalize on something that's going to become very big worldwide. So their
0: biggest problem is production. Ramping right. up quick enough, is that right?
1: Ramping up quick and quickly okay. enough. So uh, it's a good
0: problem. It's a very and, good problem. And, 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 and autonomous vehicles?
1: Yes. So the reason that's going to happen is also economic. So that by the year 2020, we believe that it will cost about 35, these, this is U.S. dollars, yep. 30, 35 U.S. Yep. cents. 50 local. Okay. Yep. Um, per mile uh, to get anywhere. Uh, Right now, if we use our personal vehicles, which we use about 5% of of the time each day, it costs about 70 cents per mile, so it'll be half of that cost. Uh, If you compare it to taxis, it will be one-tenth of the cost of the average U.S. taxi rate. So um, we think there's going to be um, a shift on, uh, to autonomous taxi networks. We know that Tesla is planning the first network out there in the United States. Uh, Google's uh, also trying to figure out its go- go-to-market strategy. We think Tesla's is better. And
0: um, Apple?
1: But Apple. It's interesting. We've watched them for a while. They had Titan. 600. Uh, 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 yes, they had 600 engineers focused on uh, autonomous uh, vehicles. They lost some of their important talent, uh, the movers and the shakers. We put Apple into one of our strategies focused on industrial innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a call option. We only put in a one percent position. As soon as we saw the talent departure. We sold it because that is, as you mentioned earlier, the visionaries are what you need to move in and, as we say, move uh, move quickly and break things or move fast and break things. Just get there and do it because uh, the network effect means winner takes most.
0: Kathy, can we talk about one more area I know you're keen on, or I believe so, is genome. Um, yes explain a little bit what you, what, about what you see in the future and how you can invest to profit for that. Yes. And I also love, you know, I, I think when I was reading uh, about your organization, um, you know, the fact that you're you're talking about it, you know, changing the world and doing a lot of good yes. as well as profiting from it. And I think yes. this is an area which is an example.
1: Yes, it is. Um, every, every, uh, disruptive innovation that we're focused on is technologically enabled, and it is going to change the way the world works, and we believe is going to make it a better place. So that's that's a, a starting point for that's cool. all, everything. Uh, gen- genome is particularly interesting right now because we call it the genomic revolution. Uh, there is so much uh, pessimism in the healthcare space, certainly in the United States, because of All of the controversy over affordable healthcare, or what is otherwise known as Obamacare, Mm -hmm. uh, it's in gridlock in the United States, and a lot of companies are paralyzed as a result. Uh, There's also a lot of talk about cutting prices, cutting drug prices, and so again, another source of concern. When you talk about the genomic revolution, what's fascinating about it is it too is riding down a cost curve. DNA sequencing is riding down a cost curve. Mm-hmm. Cost, the cost of DNA sequencing is dropping 40 to 50 percent per year. Now, healthcare. So,
0: this, this is in front of Moore's Law.
1: Oh, faster three to four times faster, right? Um, We we are using Wright's law. Moore's law is uh, applied specifically to the semiconductor space. Wright's law is applied to every technology. So we're just looking for the cost curve, in this case, down 40 to 50 percent per year. And what kind of unit growth is that going to stimulate? So the number of uh, whole human genome sequence per year is growing, now that we've moved to a new generation, roughly 200 percent per year. That's unit growth. So, these are fantastic numbers from very low base. Uh, What's happening is we're... because of what we're learning from uh, DNA sequencing, uh, we are learning that we can cure diseases. Uh, Disease is nothing more than mutations of DNA. So, if we can figure out, through DNA sequencing, what genes have mutated and we can turn those off or around, with gene editing, with CRISPR technology, which is the new new, Uh, we're going to be curing, um, there are 10,000 monogenic diseases out there, so uh, diseases caused by a mutation in just one gene. We have solutions in the marketplace for only 5% of those. Many of them hit children, and uh, we're just learning what they are. Now we can go in with gene editing, CRISPR technology, and actually edit out the mutation. This is game-changing, and it has implications for everything. HIV, Zika, dengue,
0: and cancer. Very importantly, cancer. So what sort of companies are you investing in that space to profit from that trend now?
1: So there are three companies, and the, the way I know we're not in a bubble is no one knows the names of these companies. In the late 90s, everyone would have known these names. They'd be buying them hand over fist to the stocks. So uh, there are three companies with the bulk of the IP in this CRISPR gene editing space. They are Intellia, uh, Editas. And CRISPR Therapeutics. They're small cap companies, but uh, as I just described, what they're going to do is huge. And we think there's a tremendous upside. Uh, there's another uh, set of companies using CAR-T technology. So you've heard of immunotherapy in cancer. Yes. So turning our own immune systems against cancer. Uh, And we're seeing miracles coming out of that. So one of the companies, uh, stocks in which we're invested is Kite Pharmaceuticals. So this is a company using CAR-T technology, uh, which uh, focused on um, uh, aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and focused on, on individuals who have gone through four lines of therapy already, have failed each one of them, and are on their deathbeds, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, their latest uh, results showed a complete remission rate. Complete remission rate, think about this. On their deathbeds, complete remission rate, 38%. This is shocking. And um, you know the, the, the psychology in the market is so bad that when Kite was in an earlier part of that test, uh, one person died uh, during the test. And the stock went down 30%, 40%. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm surprised more people didn't die. They're all on their deathbeds. Yeah. And here, 38% remission. Other names in that space would be Juno, Bluebird. What's very interesting about Juno to us is Jeff Bezos has invested in it, as has Bill Gates. Both of them are um, giving back in a way. So here they see some real breakthroughs. And the most interesting um member to me of late joining the board is um, uh, Jay Flatley. Jay Flatley was the CEO of Illumina which is the DNA sequencing company that has 95 percent share of all the base pairs of DNA sequenced in the world today. He thinks so highly of what Juno is doing in terms of breakthroughs uh, uh, against cancer that he wanted to join the board that's that spoke very loudly to me and even though it's earlier stage in some respects than kite or bluebird uh we uh, increased our position in that one as well
0: fantastic yeah. wow katie i could talk you know a long long time about you know web services social media mobility a whole heap of areas so you know we'd love to get you on the show next time sure um, we'll let we'll let you go now and uh, enjoy your time in Australia. Thanks for joining us Inside the Rope.
1: Thank you, Dave. I, we love Australia, so uh, happy to be here and we are enjoying it very
0: We love much. having you here. Thanks.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.